the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. The big worship song last episode, the song of Moses and Miriam, it was a recap. And kind of something to remind us and to remind the Israelites of what happened and what God brought them through in the Exodus. And they were just describing what God did for them so they would not forget. And that's the same thing that worship can do for you today. Just let him speak those songs over your life. Uh, And I will be the first to admit that there are certain songs that sometimes I'm like, well, that was a really misplaced Bible verse and it doesn't really belong in that song. But (laughs) most of the ones that are... At least you're listening to the words. Yes, I do listen to the words. Unlike my kids who who go, what's wrong with me? listening to that song. I didn't hear the words. I'm like, oh, no. Anyway, um, listen to worship songs. Let those wash over you. Let the truth of that wash over you just the way that Moses did for the Israelites. And then we also talked about the Israelites and how darn grumbly they were. They were just some whiners, complainers. First, they were at Mara and the water was bitter. And then God provided daily manna and quail and then brought them to some water that was good. So the water at Mara and the manna and the quail are the first two tests from God to teach the Israelites to trust him. The other two are in chapter 17, which begins with yet another water crisis. Why water? I ask, why water? Okay, here's why water. The Nile River that they have been living by for 400 years is the most important topographical feature of Egypt. The water it provides is the only source of water in an otherwise barren land. So all fertility came from that river. So it's not surprising then that water is a reoccurring topic in Exodus. Because think about it, baby Moses is saved by being placed in water. Mm -hmm. And it is a reminder every time the Israelites say his very name, because Moses means drawn out of the water. So they're wandering around in the desert without water, calling out, drown out of the water. Hey, drown out of the water, give us some water, because that's his name. Additionally, the first plague turned water to blood. Then the Israelites crossed through the water and the Egyptians die in the same water. So we have so much imagery of water. Now, as a new nation, Israel has left the Nile, which they loved and trusted to feed their sheep. It was their only source of water and they feel the loss. So again, this this feeling that they can't control things, that they don't know where they're going, they're going to die of thirst, they're going to Sounds you familiar. Know, you panic. can't control things. Exactly. The lack of water is a constant reminder to them of how tenuous their life is. They have left their water source behind to follow God. God is going to use this source of life because water is a source of life to build their trust in him. Ultimately, we know in the New Testament, Jesus uses this human need for water as an analogy to help us understand the life-giving source that he himself is to us with the woman at the well. We talked about that in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Was it in Genesis? Yeah, it was. All right. So here we are. Test number three is again a water test. 
All right. And as you read this, just consider, are you in a time of testing? And what are you doing during that time? Are you grumbling back against Moses or against the God who has brought you through and will bring you through this? He's given you a promise. Who are you acting like? Are you grumbling or are you trusting? And note, the Israelites did blame Moses, Moses, who was in front of them. But in our lives, we can blame our parents. We can blame our spouse. We can blame the president. Who are you grumbling against? Because you're really grumbling against God because he's over all your circumstances. All right. Chapter 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock just die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Gosh, the Israelites take grumbling to a new level here by testing the Lord and even threatening Moses. If you are following the Israelite journey and the red trail in our show notes map, Rephidim is in the middle of the southern end of the peninsula. We are getting very close to Mount Sinai. Surely this new complaint seems to be more than just a lack of faith. The people are getting cranky and this is a demand and Moses is the target for their expectations. But Moses doesn't want them to depend on him. They want, he wants them to depend on God. The Israelites are very bold, demonstrating a lack of fear and respect for God. They even go so far as to ask, is the Lord among us or not? This after just witnessing 10 plagues, the pillar of cloud and fire, the parting and collapsing of the Red Sea, the transformation of the bitter water and the daily manna and quail. Yeah, and let me just say- That's if nerve. Your butt, it is nerve, but if If you're in a season and you are asking, is the Lord among us or not? We learned in Genesis, it's okay to question God, right? As long as you trust him. Um, But if you've asked, is the Lord among us or not? Think about this. Who are you grumbling against? Yeah. And are you grumbling against those human masters or, or have you put up some idols that you need to tear down and you need to then turn and trust God? Well, better to be like David in this case and say, Lord, why have you hidden your face from me than to say, is the Lord among us or not? Because they know the Lord is among them. They've got the cloud still. <laughs> right. But both are very human um, reactions. reactions and yeah. neither one, we're not judging it, but we're just asking you if you recognize that you're in that season to figure out what you can do to turn it around and look to God. Yeah. Well, this is the sixth time that the Israelites rejected Moses and our scorecard is now six to three, rejecting six times and trusting three times. But still God patiently 
supplies their needs. Rafidim gets a new name, Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Moses, by this point, must be exhausted. He has had daily conflicts of gigantic proportions, first with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and then with his very own people. And now he faces yet another battle, attack not from within this time, but from without, an external battle. And with it comes fatigue. Test number four is the Amalekites, the first nation to attack the Israelites. Verse eight, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Raphidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. All right, let's talk about Amalek. Amalek was the son of Eliphaz, who was Esau's eldest son. And we know this from the dreaded uh, (laughs) genealogies that we read over and over Over in Genesis. Exactly. Now, remember, Esau was Jacob's twin brother, and they did not get along. In fact, they were jostling even within the womb. So the Amalekites are cousins to the Israelites. They are the first of the nations to attack Israel. Now, because the Amalekites lived in the northern part of the Negev and should have known of God's promise to give the Israelites Canaan, they should not have felt threatened because the Israelites were going to get Canaan, not their territory. But they did feel threatened, and this could have been a lingering effect of the bad relationship between Jacob and Esau because Esau um, was robbed of his birthright. Jacob stole it from them. So it could be perhaps that they remember that story and they're saying, oh my gosh, they're going to steal our land too. Now, let's talk about Joshua. This is his first mention in the Bible and this is his first battle and he's going to get a whole book after we get out of Exodus and the journey through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, Joshua, this is his first mention in the Bible and his first battle, but we are going to get a whole book of Joshua coming up. Joshua is thought at this point to be about 45 years old and Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, who was Joseph's son. And we know that Joseph's, we don't get a lot of Joseph's kids coming up. So I like that this, that Joshua comes from him. He will be Moses's personal assistant for the 40 years in the desert. He is the main man. And Joshua and Caleb are actually the only two men from Egypt over the age of 20 who live to enter the promised land. And we'll get to why that is. But Joshua and Caleb have a history uh, going into the promised land that no other men have. Even Moses, remember, does not get to go in the promised land. So he's a cool guy. Verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses's hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Okay, so let's talk about this external conflict and battle fatigue. The Israelites have barely recovered from the terror of Egypt pursuing them and already another external threat comes out of nowhere. However, the focus of the conflict in this story is not Joshua and his men duking it out on the field. It's Moses. 
Joshua is fighting as he was ordered, but the battle is not being won on the field. The battle is really won on the hill where Moses is fighting to keep his hands up. As Moses tires and his hands fall, all of Israel can look up and see that at the same time Moses' hands fall, Joshua and his men falter. Watching this fight to me is like watching a video game event. Have you ever seen him? Do you watch the battle and the and the and the army, you know, going in and out, or do you watch the guy with the game controller making <laughs> the move? To me, it's like watching a comedy of errors movie because it's like who came up with this plan? Oh, oh, wait, we notice whenever his when he's getting tired, they start to lose. Oh, I know. I'll hold up one hand and you hold up the other hand, and like they're just a bunch of buffoons standing up there well, holding his arms. Of, Lots of commentary that he may have been praising Moses. We don't know. But again, it's baby steps for the Israelites. It's something they can see. Hey, Moses is becoming exhausted. And Aaron and her step up and help. They'd hold his hands in the air. But God is sending a message to Israel. And that message is this. The nations are going to come and they're going to attack Israel and they have to fight. However, the victory is not going to come from their efforts. The victory is going to come from God, in this case, through Moses. They will suffer if they do not learn to work with Moses rather than against him. And whether it's Moses or Joshua or any future leaders, they've got to learn that the victory that God promises is a victory despite anything they do on the battlefield. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting that they mistrust everything Moses says or they're grumbling against him. But God has shown them time and time again, when Moses raises that staff, Staff, something's going to going to happen. There's going to be water come out of the rock or there's going to be a snake and or the waters are put. Whatever happens when he uses that staff, it's going to be good. And, and so, they, and they have to learn that it's not always going to be a staff. When Joshua says, march around Jericho seven times, they kind of march. Right. But they have to do what he says. Right. Obedience is important. And it's not Moses, it's God. Exactly. Exactly. Now, remember in their last bout of thirst, they threatened to stone Moses if he didn't do something about their water situation. The Israelites must understand that while God is going to sovereignly provide for his people, he has expectations of them. They must trust God and come alongside Moses when his tasks become too heavy. And we have this today. God's going to do things in our lives, but he expects that we do things too. Mm -hmm. And we can't just like demand Moses or demand from God. We have to work as if it depends on us, but have the faith to know that it really depends on him. Right. And that he's going to bring you through. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Okay, so he makes this statement, I will completely blot out the name of Amalek. And I want to talk about this because he's going to say stuff like that about other nations too. And we've already heard some mention, the Hittites, the Hibbavites, blah, 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 blah. Why such wrath at Amalek? And I want us to understand this because, you know, there's this consensus that, oh, in the Old Testament, God is such an angry God. Well, let's talk about why. Amalek is trying to get in the way of God's plan of redemption by putting an end to Israel. Israel is not just any nation. They are the chosen nation that will give birth through their genealogy to Jesus. And so God's kind of like, uh, 
I don't think so. No, you can't kill this nation because yeah. Jesus has to come from them. Israel's redemption from Egypt was only phase one of God's plan. To get to the next phase, the nation has to survive. Therefore, God's wrath will fall on any nation that tries to destroy Israel. Those nations are not just in opposition against Israel. They're in opposition to God because it would destroy God's plan. Now, once Jesus is born, another phase begins. Christ comes so that all nations can be redeemed. Jesus grafts all nations into Israel. We can participate in that redemption. So the opposition moves then from against nations to against us as individuals. However, in the final phase told in Revelations, there will be an end to all opposition to God forever. Does that make sense? You see how the opposition is is moving? (laughs) It's moving from against just Israel because the seed is going to come from Israel that's going to redeem all of us to then us. We have Jesus in our lives. We have salvation. So then the opposition, the enemy comes against us because we carry the light of Christ to others. And then in the future, we just know in Revelations, the final battle is going to occur and there's going to be no opposition to God at all forever. Yay. Can't wait. Can't wait. So what then becomes of the Amalekites? Well, this is kind of cool. The Amalekites will resurface. Remember, God says, I'm going to blot them out completely. Well, they're going to resurface for battle during Saul's reign in 1 Samuel 15. We'll get there one day. Then in that in that battle, God orders that Saul destroy them. However, Saul disobeys. He doesn't kill the king and he gets in trouble for it. David then has to battle them again in 2 Samuel. And we kind of think they're gone. But guess what? They reappear as a remnant one last time in Esther, where Haman, who was believed to be an Amalekite, single-handedly attempts to wipe out the Jews himself. So those are a whole bunch of Bible stories that we will we get are to someday. Cover. But but I just want to point out, when he says, I'm going to blot out the name of Amalek, it's not right away. No. There's a process there. There's so a process It takes there. him a little while. It takes him a little while. Yeah. All right. The note for us is this. We too have spiritual enemies. God has a plan for you, just as he had a plan for Israel. And like Moses, sometimes we become fatigued, bad battling all that comes against us. Do you have an Aaron or her in your life? Someone to hold you up when you're exhausted? What is your greatest spiritual battle right now? Okay, moving on to chapter 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, together with Moses's sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. 
Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Jethro praises God. And this story is a picture of contrast. So Jethro was a Midianite who were the descendants again of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. He was a priest, but may have had a limited knowledge of God again, because his his group of people were not the promised people like Sarah's son, Isaac. But unlike the Egyptians and the Amalekites, Jethro, the Midianite, gets it. And while the Egyptians and the Amalekites attacked and tried to interfere with God's plan, Jethro actually praises the Lord. He sees the hand of God and he knows that he is the greatest. God dealt with Pharaoh so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And Jethro is doing just that, what God wanted, that everyone would hear what he did to the Egyptians and praise him. And Jethro has the right response. Midian is the nation that has a proper response to God's miracle of deliverance in contrast to the story right before this, that of the Amalekites. So, so that's what's so cool about them. back to the question that I asked in the beginning of this episode about whether or not you're going through a season that you might be grumbling against who? Against God, against a leader. Have you held up an idol, kind of like they would hold up idols of God? Or are you reacting in the way that Jethro does and says, okay, I'm going to tear down these idols. <laughs> I now know that God, you are the true God. I'm going to listen to what you say. I'm going to believe your promises are true. And I'm going to follow what you tell I'm me to do. I'm just going to watch the cloud. Yeah, I'm going to watch the cloud. I'm going to look ahead to the cloud. Well, what became of the Midianites? Uh, the Midianites, however, are not always friends to the Israelites. They will battle Israel and judges and Isaiah will speak very harshly of them. But the point to us is, you know what? Are you a person like them, a nation who maybe at first praises the Lord, but then falls away? Or do you stick with it? And you praise him forever. I think all of us, if we're honest, we're probably like the first one that you mentioned. We tend to fall away, just like the Israelites. And guess what? Here's the good news. That's why the whole plan is set in motion to begin with. Exactly. Jesus saved all of us. Continuing on in verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? while all these people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. 
So in the prior story, we had the story of external conflict and battle fatigue. And as if external battles were not exhausting enough, Moses now faces internal conflict and battle fatigue. And here we have a glimpse of the not so perfect Moses, because of course, Moses could not resolve disputes for two million people. Why did he not think of this on his own? I think that Moses is an Enneagram one like me. Oh, probably. (laughs) Because he could do anything. I have definitely uh, appreciated this passage in the past. Like, hey, quit trying to do this all on your own. (laughs) You're going to wear yourself out. And guess what I do? I just thank you, Moses, for, you know, guiding the way for us perfect. Yeah, I don't know if things were just happening too fast for him. Like perhaps water to drink and military battles took precedence over organizing a legal system. But Mm. Moses... uh, That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. He was definitely living in the important, urgent quadrant of life and not really thinking ahead like this is not going to work long term. Everything was an emergency and he was needed everywhere. It took an outsider to see the looming threat and an outsider who cared enough to speak wisdom into Moses's life. And that was Jethro. And God probably brought him there just for this purpose. Because he even said he was so cool the way he said, you know, if if God, well, he's going to say it next, I'm getting ahead, but he's going to say, you know, if, if, if God agrees, try this. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's super respectful. But the, the, the note I want to make to us is, are you battling fatigue? Life keeps us very busy and some of us just take on too much. Are you living in the important, urgent quadrant? Does your load feel too heavy for you? Do you have a friend that you know well enough to see when you are out of balance? Because we just cannot be used of God to our best and highest, greatest use if we're like fighting battles on the ground, too many battles. Yeah. And then also, if you are a person who has somebody who is speaking this into your life, um, are you open to that feedback? Yes. Because I could imagine um, if an in-law of mine came to me and said, hey, what you're doing is not right. You need to change. I would be like, "Uh, who do you think you are, lady? Right. So I think just remember that, that as long as the person is a person who understands the scripture and the Bible and the principles of God, they're speaking into your life. Take that feedback for what Mm -hmm. it is, feedback, and consider whether or not you need to implement that. And that's hard to do sometimes. And kudos to Jethro, because remember, Moses worked for Jethro for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so Jethro, Moses clearly had come to respect him. And, and that is probably why he listened. So if you are in that manager position or over somebody or a parent, you know, make sure that what you're doing in the years that you have with them is is something that they can trust. Honorable. And yeah, it's yeah. honorable. Good point. Verse 19. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. So this is kind of the law before the nations had laws. <laughs> so we have, we don't quite have the Ten Commandments yet. Almost. We're about there. But Jethro's advice is really clear. 
the answer to every dispute must come from God. And we think about the laws we have now, even in our country, they really do come from God's principles. Like, you know, murder is still against the law. If it's against God's law, it's against our law. God's precepts should be the basis for the law of the land before nations even had laws. Therefore, Moses must teach the people God's decrees. In just a few chapters, God is going to give them that law in written form. Then, 40 years later, standing on the brink of the promised land, a land that Moses will not get to enter with them, Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6.6 that these commandments are to be on their hearts. The law for us as believers is not just a list in our heads, but a way of life in our heart. To have the law in our hearts is to know God. God made that possible for us in the new covenant and in the New Testament. When we believe in Jesus, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And the result is that the written law of God is no longer offensive to us. It's not just something we have to think about in our brain. And the inclination to obey that law is prompted by the Holy Spirit in our heart. Continuing on in verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law, to your point, Susan, (laughs) and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So take heart. <laughs> you can take the advice and still send him on his way. Send, him on, send your in-laws on <laughs> your way. eventually go home. But I love that even thousands of years ago, God's precepts were before the law of the land that we live by now. Yeah. And I think because in America, where we are recording this, we have this separation of church and state. We think that it's not. But really, even our country was um, founded using these same principles. Oh, even cultural morality has its its roots in the precepts of God. Mm-hmm. Well, several of our characters drop out of the story at this point. Jethro and Zipporah are never mentioned again. Although we know that Zipporah and her son stay with Moses because his son, Gershom's descendants, will serve as priests in Judges 18. It is perhaps thought that Zipporah dies as Numbers records that Moses has a Cushite wife, but there is much uncertainty about who this woman is and when she may have married Moses. And even some ascribe the Cushite woman to be Zipporah, even though she was a Midianite. Confusion there. Do you think maybe they were still practicing that polygamy that they were doing back in the days of Jacob? I'll tell you, I read a lot. I went down a black hole on this. I got to be honest, you know, got to know who the woman is. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's some, especially um, Jewish people who who definitely ascribe to the fact that, no, he just had one wife and they described her as Cushite, which would have been Ethiopian looking, so darker skinned because she was very beautiful. Zipporah is said to be very beautiful in in Jews' um, history. So the Jews kind of seem like they're in the camp that no, they were just giving this kind of compliment to her as being a Kushite because she was so beautiful. Now, on the other camp, there 
are many who say that, yes, possibly Zipporah died because she's not mentioned again and he remarried. Why he would marry a Kushite woman? Then there's a whole other camp that says that, no, he had married this Kushite when he had been a leader in the Egyptian army as a young man and had defeated the Kushites and that she was a Kushite princess. So he had two wives the whole time, possibly. We don't possibly. know. We don't know. Because Zipporah <laughs> couldn't have been a Kushite because it said that they were Midianites. Well, the Jews, a lot of the Jews believe that she was Kushite looking dark skinned. So they're mm-hmm. saying it more as like a beauty compliment of her looks versus her nationality. Well, that was a rabbit hole. But the point yes. is <laughs> your in-laws will eventually go home. Yes. No, just kidding. That's not the point. No, the point no. is... Who do you have in your life who can lift you up when you need it, who can advise you in the ways of the Lord when you need it, and then you send them home? No, just kidding. And then even our new nation, Israel, needed a system, a legal system, and had laws that even preceded the laws that we hear to today. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.